one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bundjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery is a new age beverage company revolutionising the way we look at having a night out with friends. They make sophisticated, non-alcoholic beverages that are sugar-free and full of social graces. Now you can enjoy a good time, love what you drink and love yourself the next day too. Stay high in spirits, keep a clear mind. Cheers to Monday. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm joined by the amazing Sarah Rusbatch. Sarah is five years sober. She's an amazing sober coach. She works out of Perth in WA, has worked with thousands of people, has amassed thousands of followers, and has just been such a great force in the whole sober space. And I'm very, very excited to have her on today. We're going to talk a bit about her journey with alcohol. And also we're going to give you some tips about how to deal with a fam bam over Christmas, how to deal with a shitstorm that comes at you over Christmas and how to get yourself through unscathed and sober by the end. So Sarah, how are you? I'm really well. I was just saying to you before we went on air, I'm hot. It's a 40 degree day in Perth today. So it's been a hot one. That's just rude. Rude. It's really rude. 
<laughs> as opposed to over here on the other side of the country, it's humid. It's really, really humid and, and quite gross too. So yeah, but yeah no. shouldn't complain. Exactly. Be, be grateful. Exactly, exactly. I moved here for the sunshine, so I've got to be grateful for the sunshine. Yeah, where did you move from? Obviously, I can hear that uh, UK accent. Whereabouts were you born? Where are you from? Um, so I lived most of my childhood we moved around a lot when I was little and then settled in Manchester in the north of England. And then I was living in London for 10 years before we made the decision to move out to Perth. So we moved here in 2010. So 13 years. Wow. Tell us a bit about childhood. What was it like for you growing up? Did mum and dad drink? Tell us a bit about little Sarah. Yes, there was definitely alcohol present in my life growing up. A lot of my formative years were in Scotland so I can have I have many memories of drunken men in kilts stumbling around my house um, and, and it all just looks sounds fun. kind of hot <laughs> oh yeah no honestly Danny if you saw these men with their big beer bellies and their, um, and their beards, <laughs> so not like Jamie hot. from that that show you know the redhead guy <laughs> oh what's it Outlander yeah nah oh, if mm. only <laughs> no it was definitely not like that there was definitely alcohol present and what little Sarah learned from a very early age was alcohol is what grown-ups do to have fun I had a very exotic grandmother who lived all over the world and retired in the south of France and would often start drinking her gin and tonics at kind of 10 in the morning and that was the way she lived her life and was always very happy to give me you know the the European way have a little glass of wine at nine years old you know a little thimble of wine with dinner and it was it wasn't forced on me in any way but it was just alcohol was very present it was very accepted it was certainly something that from a young age it was not a matter of if I would drink alcohol, it was a matter of when I would drink alcohol. And coupled in with that was the fact that I mentioned earlier, we moved around quite a lot. I was born in Scotland. We moved down to the south of England when I think I was two. We moved back to Scotland when I was seven. I went to three different schools in Scotland. And then we moved to Manchester when I was 13. And that was a pretty it's a difficult age to move country to be starting over again and hormones and and all the rest of it so that definitely played a part in kind of how things panned out for me after that why were you guys moving around so much just my dad's job he just worked um for an insurance company and kept getting promoted and with that came lots of moves around the country how was that for little sarah all moving around like everyone is, my mum has always called me, oh, I'm so strong and I'm so resilient. And so when people tell you that's what you are, you kind of act that way and don't really think about how hard it is. But I do have memories of being so sad. Like I think I was year one when I was, yeah, year one or year two when we moved from the south of England to Scotland. And I had this best friend and she was like my best friend in the whole world. And to, she was just taken away from me you know and we moved to Scotland and I was if you know much about Scotland and England the Scots pretty much hate the English and I was even though I'd been born in Scotland I had an English accent settling in at school was quite tricky trying to find friends there was still a little bit of teasing and bullying there's the English girl and I just would write letters day after day to my best friend in England and I mean that was obviously back in the day when you'd sent letters in the post and, and it was hard like I can remember really struggling to feel like I fitted in yeah, that's so sad. I feel really sad for her because I can imagine this little girl trying to fit in and writing those letters to her best friend and missing her best friend. And also, I guess kids, they don't get consulted. They don't get asked if it's if that's what they want to do. No, 
than yeah. that it's just you yeah. get told that you're doing it and then I got very settled in Edinburgh where we lived and found a really good group of friends and my Scottish accent came back and I fully embraced my Scottish life and then I'd just done a year of high school which is hard right settling into high school and it was a big school it was in quite a rough area that was like the tough survive type of place and I was very sheltered before going to this school and then you kind of went there and there were people like snogging in the toilets and stuff and I was like oh my god like you know that was so foreign to me I wasn't at all sexually adventurous or anything I was 11 years old and there was all this stuff that was going on at the same age as me so that kind of opened my eyes to this whole world and then I got the call oh no we're moving back to England and oh it was and I had my core little best friend there and I was very settled and oh it was very very hard that wow I mean were you pissed off (laughs) like did you speak up about it what did you do I can remember crying a lot like really having tantrums but Mm. it just wasn't like wasn't up for discussion it was just this Mm. is what's happening and as I said I went to kind of quite a it was a great school but it wasn't a posh school should we say and then we moved to Manchester and they have this system in the UK where you take an exam and if you pass the exam you go to what's called a grammar school so you don't pay for it but it's for the smart kids so I scraped through like by the, you know, like by the tiniest amount, I think I was probably 1% over the pass mark and got into this all girls, single sex grammar school that was very strict, quite well to do, very posh with all these really smart kids. So I've just come from this like quite rough high school where people are like snogging in the toilets and the year 12s are probably shooting up somewhere. And it was all kind of quite like you didn't have a uniform, you wore what you wanted. And all of a sudden I was in this school, I had a very strong Scottish accent. All these girls were playing lacrosse and playing netball and off doing all of these things that I've never done before in this really posh uniform. And I had this terrible perm and really loads of spots on my skin and I was trying to again make friends get people to like me what's the way that I do this looking back it was freaking hard I mean we're going in deep here but what do you think that meant for you growing up and your core beliefs about yourself or looking back what do you think you might have made that mean about yourself it really kind of has impacted me from a security and stability perspective and particularly as a mother now like I had a very difficult decision to make with my son a few years ago about pulling him out of a school and sending him to another school and it brought up loads of stuff for me because I remember how hard that was and although I knew it was the right decision for him to move him I had to kind of navigate through that so for me at that age like it definitely made me feel like it set my nervous system into complete dysregulation because I constantly lived on this knife edge of never knowing is what I've created now going to be taken away from me am I going to get a call one day saying oh yes Sarah we're moving again Oh, yeah, you can never kind of relax into it. Gabor Mate talks about the need for attachment and the need for authenticity, but you're trying to get the attachment with people, but you're kind of learning as you go, well, what version of Sarah do people like? How do I have to perform to get people to like me? And so yeah. you kind of don't ever really get this chance as you should in the teenage years to develop into the person that you truly are because your need for attachment is so strong and you're trying to ensure that you you make friends and you have that connection and belonging because that's what humans need. And so your connection to self, I think, comes at the bottom of the list. 
Absolutely. hundred percent. So did you start drinking in that time, Sarah? Like, uh, obviously I heard you say that you started little nips here and there when you were younger, but when did you kind of start? When was your first session yeah. with friends? So at 14. So we moved 14. when I was, I was 12 and a half. Was I? No, I was 14, I was 13 when we moved and I started drinking the end of 14 coming up to 15 and, and we would fill up soda stream bottles with whatever we could find in our parents drinks cabinet and we'd go down the local park and drink and that was just someone said that was let's do that that's kind of what you did and I was like well yeah that makes sense to me that's what adults do to have a good time so I'm nearly 15 I'm practically a grown-up so therefore I'll go and do that as well and I can remember very clearly how much I liked it and the reason I liked it so much was because I felt my nervous, I didn't know this at the time, I felt accepted, I felt connection, I felt like I was part of the group, I didn't feel like I was the new girl anymore, and it just, you know what it's like when you're trying, you're my best friend, and that was all I ever wanted to hear, right, and so for me it was like, ah, oh, this is a way to make friends, this is a way to get love, this is a way to get connection. Yeah, that old chestnut. Yeah. I'm hearing you. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And so how did it evolve from there for you? Was it just an ongoing weekly thing? I don't remember it being problematic. Like, yeah, I can definitely remember some parties and puking and coming home and mum having to put me to bed. And then, but, and mum always kind of going like, why are you, why do you drink so much? It was never, oh, you shouldn't drink, but it was just, why do you get so drunk that you're sick? But for me, from a very early age, there was no off switch. It was just like, let's just keep going and social life. And then this was in Manchester in the 1990s. So then drugs became quite prevalent. We were going raving. It was the beginning of the dance music scene. Ecstasy was everywhere. And so for a while, and again, I mean, that just ticked all the boxes to me because you were best friends with everyone on the dance floor. It wasn't just the people you were talking to. And so I loved that whole rave scene. I loved the music. I loved the dance. I loved the connection. I loved feeling like one with everyone in the dance floor. Like, And I definitely lost myself for a few years in that and and probably drugs at that point took over a bit more than alcohol and then and again but alcohol had been the theme it was moved to university at 18 how do you make friends you go out fresh as week and you get smashed left uni moved to London how do you make friends you go out for drinks with all the people in your company like it was just a very boozy life and I definitely attracted people into my life that liked drinking in the way that I did but in your 20s most people do right so there was never a shortage of people to socialize with and mingle with and go out with it was just that nobody else seemed to want to do it as often as I did so I rotated around different people so there was always someone to drink with but on the nights that some of my friends weren't drinking they were home having quiet nights whereas that just didn't seem to feature for me that much. Wow. Were you also drinking at family events with family and did you find you were accepted with family as well or it helped you in that groove with family a little bit as well? Yeah, I can remember the infamous barbecue night that my friend still laughs about now. One of my girlfriends had come to my house for a family barbecue. So I must have been like late teens and we just got absolutely wrecked and like my mother wouldn't speak to me for like days afterwards because I'd made such a fool of myself and lots of the aunties and uncles and stuff were there and But again, it was no one really said it was a problem. They weren't worried about me. It was just more that I'd been an embarrassment. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like, hey, I'm worried about your drinking. 
It was, oh my God, you just embarrassed all of us the way that you were drinking that night, which is different if you look at those two different ways of, of considering it. Mm-hmm. And did you feel embarrassed about your behavior the next day? No, I don't think I did actually. I remember yeah, a little bit, but not, I think I was more just kind of like, well, that's what I do. That's this identity that I'd created of who I was. And if you don't like it too bad type thing, I was Sarah, the party girl. I was Sarah, the one that didn't care what anyone else thought about her. And of course I did. Of course, deep down, there was just still this vulnerable, scared little girl that just wanted to be loved. But what portrayed to the outside world was I'm a hardcore party girl. Don't mess with me. I'll I'll take shit from anyone type thing. And so then when you create that persona, people treat you that way. Yeah. So I hear you say that you would get the can't stops. I can relate to that feeling. It really seems to come hand in hand with people who binge drink, not so much the daily drinkers, but the big binge drinkers, the blackout drinkers, and this sort of wanting to fit in confidence connection loop. Yeah. Seems we all have that in common. Absolutely. And Mm. and I, I find that as well. And, and I think that for me, the, when the moment it changed was, motherhood and so in my 20s I'd gone traveling I'd met my husband he was from New Zealand he is from New Zealand we we came back to London we lived together we carried on partying you got no responsibilities you we both had great jobs we had disposable income we were having weekends in south of France and Italy and and you just have this dream lifestyle and and we drank a lot but I wasn't drinking at home on my own I was partying a lot, but I just was like, well, yeah, I'm a really social person. And although I could see it was definitely impacting me, so I got into my 30s and we would do these bender weekends that started on a Friday, finished on a Sunday, sometimes not getting a huge amount of sleep. And then you're at work on Monday and you'd get the nightmare Monday and Tuesday where the whole world's against you and you don't want to speak to anyone and you're at work and I was director of a recruitment business at this point so I was like managing lots of people having to do all these client meetings and all of this and I just wanted to die inside I was just like I was struggling with it so much but it was just unthinkable to me that I would change my lifestyle because I needed the connection that came from the partying lifestyle that we had. Had you put two and two together at that point or was it just you were just on autopilot not really realizing why? No and the recruitment industry if I drank like a lot of people around me recruitment industry back in the day in the late 90s early 2000s it was all wine and dine your clients it was all going out and drinking from lunchtime onwards this was London there wasn't the same culture around alcohol as there is now and so it was very accepted And then we started trying to get pregnant and that didn't happen, funnily enough. But again, like Danny, we were going to fertility clinics and talking to doctors. And I can't remember if I lied when they talked about alcohol or if it just didn't come up. But I don't remember it being a flag in any way whatsoever. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Don't take this as medical advice, but a lot of people I talk to just have said that when they stopped drinking, they got pregnant. Yeah. 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 It seems to. And it's both for the Again, man not... and the woman. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, little drunk spermies probably can't find their way. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up getting pregnant with fertility treatment. And then I just stopped drinking. Like I wanted to be a mom. There was not even a question for me that I would drink. And so 
like the odd glass, small glass of wine over my pregnancy, but nothing, it wasn't hard. Like I didn't struggle at all. It was just like, ah, I was so looking forward to becoming a mum. And a big wake up call for me was when William was nine weeks old, it was Mother's Day in the UK and it was my birthday. So the day before we'd gone out for lunch with friends and I was bottle feeding by this point. And I had a couple of glasses of wine and it was instant, Danny. It was just instant, the little voice in my head that just didn't want me to stop. And so I had a couple more. And then I was like, oh, I've got to get William home. We've got to get home. And so we went home, but friends came back to our house. And so I put him to bed and then I had a couple more drinks. And the next day, the shame and the disgust that I felt with myself. And that's probably the first time that I ever silently thought to myself, I've got a problem. I thought I'd be fixed by now. I thought motherhood would fix me. And look at what's just happened. Sarah, I know so many women, friends of mine, that their drinking was getting out of control and they that was their fix it, I'll get pregnant. And it didn't fix it. No, funnily enough, it doesn't, right? It's also interesting how you had all that time off in the pregnancy, but then it's still there waiting for you when you do start to drink again. Talk to me a bit about if it's okay to go there. Just the shame. What did you feel the shame about? Who was I to be a mother to that beautiful little boy? How could I have been given this opportunity and then to have behaved in the way that I did? Mm. Like it was so strong, that feeling. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. I remember it was Mother's Day. It should have been, it was my first Mother's Day, Danny. It should have been a day just filled with so much pride and so much love and so much joy. And I didn't even want to cuddle him because I felt so disgusting and that I wasn't worthy of him. Oh, do you want to cry? Yeah, I I can relate to that feeling. I remember so many times, like not having remembered, put the girls to bed and just waking up like, what the fuck? What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Yeah. Hating myself so much. Yeah. So shit. Yeah. It's horrible because you. I didn't reach out for help. I didn't tell anyone how I was feeling. I just kept it all inside because that's what shame does, right? Shame. You don't want anyone else to know your dirty secrets and who you really are. And so you keep it all inside and then it just grows and grows inside you. Yeah. Did that stop you there or did you keep going? Oh, it stopped me for a little while, for sure. And then it just slowly crept back in. And then we made the decision to move to Australia and I just wanted, and we both wanted a fresh start. My husband's from New Zealand. It was never going to be forever in the UK. And so we decided to move to Perth. And interestingly, like I wasn't, I was drinking over this period, but not a huge amount. And because I wasn't socializing in the same way. And I was content in motherhood. I was really that first year with William, like I was so happy. It was a, a wonderful year. And then we got to Australia And I got pregnant again within a couple of weeks of us being here because it turns out when you're not getting smashed all the time, your body obviously knows what to do. And that was when I think everything changed for me after Scarlett came along because all of a sudden I had two under two. What I hadn't had over the course of my pregnancy with Scarlett was that was me settling into a new country 
And I'd only ever used alcohol as a way to make friends and find people. And that wasn't available to me anymore. And I really struggled to, I met a beautiful group of girls and then we moved. That was when we were in a rental. Then we ended up buying a house an hour, over an hour's drive from where they lived. And so I was starting again, but I didn't have my trusty booze to go, let's go out and have wine tonight. And because I was pregnant. And so I was feeling very, very lonely, very, very homesick, very, very sad. And then I had Scarlett and breastfed for a while. And then once she was on the bottle, that was then when everything started to change in terms of what I was using alcohol for and that becoming that crutch. So did you start drinking again after Scarlett was born? So after, and that's when I just started to notice, I was looking forward to it more and more. I had this horrible feeling inside. You know, it it was sadness, it was loneliness, it was homesickness, it was confusion. It was a little bit of boredom from having had this career in London that was high flying and all this wonderful stuff that I was doing. And I was at home with these two kids under two that were we were going to baby rhyme time and baby swimming and monkey music and pureeing and vegetables and changing nappies. And I had no family. I didn't really have many friends and I didn't know who the hell I was. It was like I was I remember there was one day that I was due to be speaking to a girlfriend in the UK that evening once she woke up. And I was literally so looking forward to it because I needed that connection. And then she cancelled. And the devastation that I felt was not a a normal reaction to someone just cancelling a phone call. And I drank a bottle of wine. And that was and very quickly. And I can remember that night and just going, shit, where's that gone? Like, you know, when it just goes like that. And you're like, wow, where's that gone? And that was the first time I think that I opened a second bottle. And it just started kind of building from there. Wow. When you look at that version of you, if you were to look at that her as being someone completely different and you're looking in from the outside, how do you feel towards that person? I just want to give her the biggest hug. She was so, she had nothing in her toolbox. That was mm. the thing because alcohol had been the thing in my toolbox for all my life, really. And mm. all those feelings and my husband love him to bits but emotional support he was brought up on a farm in New Zealand where you don't talk about feelings or emotions and stuff so he was like the only person that I had here in Perth and and he wasn't really that available and he was struggling himself with starting a new business and and doing all of that and so you don't realize how hard it is until you're through it and you look back and you then you're like fuck that was just so hard yeah, it's like I imagine I'm seeing this person who's just so lonely and doesn't know what to so do with lonely. it. Yeah, the little girl, but little with girl. loneliness being such a trigger for me because of all the times that I'd felt lonely in my life, it wasn't just the loneliness that was coming up from that in situation. It was all the times in my life that I'd ever felt lonely were all coming up for every version of Sarah that had ever felt like that. And it was just too much. It was too big. It was too hard to deal with. And alcohol offered a way to not feel that <laughs> I want to give her a hug I know oh it's so sad yeah it's so sad if only we knew when that was happening if we only had the tools if we only knew what was actually going on for us yeah, yeah. oh Sarah so what got you to the point where you're just like okay no more 
Yeah. So a few more years just carried on like that. And it was never, I wasn't drinking every day. I wasn't drinking in the mornings. I would never class myself an alcoholic, but I was drinking heavily. But I was getting away with it. Like, you know, I was running half marathons because I decided that if I could run a half marathon, I didn't have a problem with alcohol. I was drinking my kale smoothies and doing all those things because it kind of made me go like, yeah, I'm healthy. I just like wine. And but then a few things started happening after 40, where we know like in a woman's body, you can't metabolize alcohol in the same way you don't. And it started to really impact my sleep. So every time I drank, even if it was two or three glasses, I was waking up at two or three o'clock in the morning. So my way of dealing with that was not to not drink. It was to take a sleeping tablet after the wine, because then that would mean I wouldn't wake up at 3 a.m. I remember doing the same thing. I've talked about it before on the podcast of just like, and, and a couple of times not remembering that I'd already actually taken one. Yeah. What the fuck? I know. Mm. And how you feel in the morning when not only have you had a bottle and a half of wine, but a sleeping tablet as well. And oh God. so scary, yeah. isn't it? It is so scary. Did your husband know? About the sleeping tablets? No. Nah, no one knew. No, Ash didn't. Or a couple of times he figured it out. And he's just like, what the fuck are you doing? No, nah, I would never have told him. And I've kept it quite hidden. And then the next thing like, was the anxiety started increasing. And I've never been that an anxious person. I've, I guess my coping strategy has always been, I'm quite extrovert. I love people. I'm, I'm and, and anxiety just hadn't featured that much for me in my life and then it started to build and the overthinking the worrying about what I'd said like all of those things and going to a a doctor's and being very sad and very emotional and talking about the anxiety and at no point did she talk about how much you're drinking alcohol didn't even come up but happily gave me a script for anti-anxiety meds which is quite common so much that makes me so cross. Mm. Mm, it is really common, unfortunately. Right. And so tell us about the day before you decided to call it quits because we've mm. all had that day before. Was it a big event? Was it not much? Yeah. So it, it was an interesting one because there were three, and I'll, I'll just very quickly share. 2017, I went to a party, face planted, fell over, landed on my face, cut my nose open, cut my lip open, and that was a bit of a wake-up call and after that that was the event that then made me go I'm gonna take a break and just as I did that I was scrolling Facebook and someone in my group said oh I've just read Annie Grace's book This Naked Mind it's completely changed my thoughts around alcohol so I was like oh perfect this will help for my 21 day detox so because I was just like I just need to reset I just need to take a little break so I read the book did a hundred days because just kept going because I was like I feel amazing I feel amazing and then got to a hundred days and was like oh but I can't never drink again that would just be weird like I'm Sarah the party girl but I'll be able to moderate now because of course we all go oh I've taken a hundred days so everything's fine and we all know how that works out so the moderation didn't work and so for two years from 2017 to 2019 I battled with the trying to moderate, never being able to, taking breaks, going back to drinking. And in March 2019, I set the date. And it was a month later when I knew that that would be the last time I would drink. It was just, it was so deep in me that I knew because I knew that everything in my life was better without alcohol. I knew I was better. I was a better mom, a better wife, a better friend. I felt happier. 
I was had more energy, like everything was better. And I've taken quite a few longer breaks by this point. So I set the date and it was going to be after a friend's 40th. And I said, that's going to be my last night of drinking. I got my hair done. I got my makeup done. I was like, yeah, I'm going out for a big shebang. And I went to the party. I had two drinks and I went home. And that was it. That was like our last night too. We were all like planning our last night was going to be, and it was just such a fizzer. (laughs) I think that happens because we have this expectation. It's, it's never that. Well, that's amazing. And just for people listening too, I think it's really important that just because you don't get it the first time or you've had a break and then you think you've got to moderate, which we've all done, we've all been there and it doesn't quite work out to plan, even though that even some people go for a few months, just I've got this, I've got this and seem to go back to the old patterns. It's just because the neural pathway is so bloody deep and strong that we've been working on that shit for years. It's not because you're weak or anything like that. But what is great about that is that if you have some time off and you feel good about it, and look, even if you do go back, it's still there. I was talking to my sister about this the other day. It's still there. Like no one could take that time away from you. Yeah. And you know now. So even if you go back, you might come back again and you go back and forth for a while until you get to place, I guess, where we both go. I mean, I tried freaking so many times to stop. It just clicks one day. And don't you think that it has to be part of the process, that it unfolds yep. as it's meant to? Because I don't know yep. anyone that just for the first time they quit, that that is it. There is always a period of time where you have to test yourself. You almost have to give yourself the evidence of, I can't moderate. I'm never going to be that kind of drinker. So therefore I've got a decision to make. Do I want to carry on drinking like I am? Or do I want to really, really take this extended break? Because I could never say forever, but I was like, do a longer period of time. Yes. And there's no shame in that. Even if it takes you a hundred, 200 goes, it doesn't fucking matter. No. Not it at all. doesn't matter. You know, I, I just, I just feel that people end up feeling so shameful about that. And you know, we're both here to tell you that we've both been there. And yeah. It's so fine. I'd say for most people, it's an essential part of the journey. A hundred percent. It's like a baby learning to walk, isn't it? You yeah. Know, you've got to fall over. You've got to fall over a few times. That's right. So how did you do it? sober group so back then in 2019 and I'd been in these sober groups for quite some time and they were all UK based because there wasn't that much in Australia then so I was in an online Facebook group just with women who were all sober and they were they were ahead of me they held my hand when I asked a question they answered when I asked for help they were there and them plus the books plus walking plus podcasts you know those were the things and then I decided to set myself the goal I'm going to get a PB in a half marathon because I had to prove to myself that now that I wasn't drinking, I could like, you know, and training for that goal was so helpful. Oh, absolutely. They're so great. It's just like having a group, doing some daily exercise, having good input and then setting a goal for yourself. That's it. That's that's absolutely beautiful. I know myself, we quit when we were living in Bali and Ash and I were just talking about this the other night where I just listened to Wayne Dyer like over and over and over again. And Ash and I were laughing, just saying, oh, just there's Danny out in the rice fields, just walking, 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 listening to Wayne. Rah, 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 rah. <laughs> Having a good old teary. Yeah. And that was just me. I fucking walked it out. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And listened to good stuff that was inspiring yeah. me and that made me feel good. Yeah. Sarah, oh my God. You know, it's great listening to you talk to and, and thinking about that version of you that was so lonely. And now you've got like thousands of women that are in your posse. It's as your thing. You've got all these beautiful people 
and yeah. created this beautiful community. Certainly yeah. not lonely now. No, definitely not lonely. And, you know, like there's a lot of women in my life now and some would say, oh, but is it true connection? Because can you have that deep connection with so many people? And I think the difference is, Danny, because I've done the work on myself now. And, and the other thing that I did was I went into therapy and I did shitloads of therapy on myself. I did schema therapy. I connected to little Sarah. I've done somatic therapy. I've done trauma release work. And I did the work. And mm-hmm. now the version of me that shows up is it's me, it's my authentic self. And I'm honest and I'm open and I'm vulnerable and I share. And what that means is the connection that I have with the people in my life is so much deeper and so much truer because I'm not performing. I'm not playing a part that I want that I, to try and make them like me. And mm. gosh, the freedom that and the sense of calm and peace that comes from that is, is life-changing. Mm. Ash and I had this interesting conversation on the beach this morning. I've just been reading... Um, Nicola Perez's book how to meet yourself it's like a workbook and it was really interesting something in there she said if we spend so much time trying to get people to like us that we don't even stop to think if we even like those people and yeah yeah, it was really it was such a light bulb moment for me something I hadn't even thought about before and Ash and I were chatting about it on the beach because we saw someone on the beach this morning and I was like oh that person makes me a bit nervous and then I told him what I'd read this morning so we had this big chat about that and yeah right yeah, it's very different, isn't it, when you go from that place of wanting people to like you to actually just being your authentic self and just going, okay, well, here I am. Yeah. I mean, I still haven't nailed that, I'll be honest. But yeah. yeah and we're a work in progress. We're always a work in progress. I will keep doing the work because I can feel myself when I'm slipping away from myself. And then mm. it's like, whoa, okay, time to come back in, time to go within again. Um, mm. and, and that's always going to be the work, right? It's so good to be on that journey. Yeah. One thing I know for sure is that the sober people in my life, whether it's people I've coached or made friends with or that are now my friends, however that looks, I feel much more authentic in those friendships than I do. I wouldn't say actually people that I've known for like all my life. They're like my family, I guess. They're the real people that I you just feel so at ease with because you've kind of gone through this similar journey with each other or or as each other so you do find that that you feel more authentic around absolutely and I find that the connection forms so much deeper so much more quickly because you cut through the bullshit and Mm. you just can go into the deeper conversations like you you and I and the stuff that we're talking about and we've never actually spoken in this way before but Mm. because people are so much they're doing the work on themselves and so put a shitload of women together who've done loads of work from them on themselves and, and just watch the different type of conversation that you'll have than loads of women sitting in a pub getting pissed. I know. We've had conversations with people from groups and then we've got together in the say my grads group or whatever. And you could be sitting there having lunch and just start crying or it's just so different. And not, mm. not that it's always heavy, like we laugh and but yeah. it's just so beautiful. So it's just so different. It's so different. In yeah. fact, I would just, something just landed for me then. Sometimes I feel more comfortable around that family, my sober family, than I do my blood yeah. family. I feel like yeah. I could be more authentic than I can yeah. within my own family. That's because don't you feel like your, your blood family, they have you in a box of who they think you are and they often don't allow the changes of growth that have happened. They don't mm. want to see them they just still put the label on you as this is what this is the person you are and you're like hey I've grown I've changed I've evolved but they're often not willing to see that 
100%. Yes. Amen. Well, that brings me to, that's a great segue, actually, Sarah, into Christmas. <laughs> because what we have coming up is Christmas mm. and all that family to deal with. All and, the family. Yeah. yeah. If you want to get triggered. My very, very close friend, Lissy Turner, she's an amazing yoga teacher. And on a retreat once she said, she didn't say this. I think it was, was some, I think it was her yoga teacher, her teacher said that once you feel you've reached enlightenment, go spend time with your family. <laughs> Love that. So true. So oh my true. God. Talk to me. Let's talk about Christmas and all the things coming up, but let's focus. I think let's focus on family a little bit because I really do feel like a family, whether it's our family, in-laws can really fucking trigger us. Yeah. I mean, there's the loneliness and all that, but Talk to me a bit about how, like you said at the start of this, you're going home to the UK to see your family over Christmas. Do you feel like you could be triggered? Oh my God, emotionally I'm triggered? Get, I'll get emotionally triggered left, right and centre because I've not had Christmas with my family since 2008. And so going back to the UK is like all my associations with the UK and Christmas are around alcohol. And so it's going to be, I know I'm a drink and I don't, and I know I'm not even worried that I'll be triggered to drink but I know that I'll be getting triggered and I'll be digging into the sober toolkit of resources to support me that I haven't had to perhaps dig into for quite some time just to make sure that I'm not living like this the whole time, you know? So you're not a lap in your head. Mm. Mm -hmm. Can you give us one of your tools? Yeah. So, I mean, exercise will be key for me because it has to be for me. That's a non-negotiable. And of course that's going to be more tricky when it's, there's few hours of daylight in the UK around that time of year and it's mm. cold and stuff, but mm -hmm. I'll be getting outside as much as I can and I'll be moving my body every single day because that helps me so much. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with it if you're inside? It's like after Christmas lunch or maybe before, maybe people are arriving and you feel anxious and nervous, maybe Arnie Jean's turning up and you haven't seen Arnie Jean for however many years and you used to get pissed together. What would you do? How would you deal with that? I would go and sit in the room that I'm sleeping in and I would just do some deep breaths and mm. I would just ground into myself. Mm. I've got a couple of meditations that I listen to that can really help. And, you know, a lot of clients say to me, I can't meditate. My mind's too busy. And, and, and it's not about you don't have to switch off your mind, but it's just about giving yourself that connection to self, just even if it's for a few minutes and just coming back and just knowing that you've got somewhere that you can go to like, it's really important to me whenever we're staying in someone else's house that I have got a space that is mine for the time that we're there that I can go to because I've, I've done it before where you're on a sofa bed in the main living area so you can't even go to bed until everybody else has gone to bed and that is hard so I will never do that again. Wow that's a really good point so how would how do you navigate that one if you yeah you have to stay at someone else's house and you don't have your own space? I wouldn't do it. Like just don't do it, it get an Airbnb went, yeah and we've even got an Airbnb for the first five days of our trip even though we could have a bedroom at my brother's house but just because I want us to get over the jet lag and I know that loads of shit comes up for me when I go home it always does it's all the stuff that I don't have mm -hmm. to deal with here right and I will just need to know I've got my space I like a bubble bath for me is just like heaven and so to know that I've got a place that when We've been with the family all day. I can go back there and I can have a bath and I can put on some music and I can just be with my family for a little bit of time. It's going mm. to be so important. 
Yeah, that it is so important. That's amazing. If you've got the resources for that, I guess. So perhaps for people who don't have the resources, Sarah, what I'm thinking is maybe even just getting outside for a walk, totally. for a 10 minute walk on your own, you totally. know, ground yourself. We were in New Zealand. I hope no one from my brother, my husband's family is listening. We were in New Zealand in Easter and we ended up all being away in a holiday house together with all our, my family, my husband's sister's family, his parents. And we were in a two bedroom Airbnb for 10 of us for six days. I did 25,000 steps a day. Like <laughs> that was how I got through it was I was like, I'm just going for a walk. And my husband's mother, I'm sick walking a lot <laughs> yeah but 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 you need that yeah. space you need that time on your own and it works for me getting out and going for a walk the other thing that I would do is if I was staying in someone else's house and I didn't have that space is I would say is there a room that I would be able to go to would I be able to go into your room if I'm finding things a little bit overwhelming do you mind if I was just to go and lie on your bed for 15 minutes and listen to a meditation or something and just mm. ask for that space because most mm. people will be like Oh God, yeah, of course you can. I can't imagine anyone not being like that. Mm, absolutely. I think it's really great too to have a meditation on the go. Like, mm. of course, I'm going to say yoga nidra because I bang on about that all the time. But yeah. if you've got a 15-minute yoga nidra, something on insight timer, just go Literally. chuck it on, go lie down for 10, regroup yourself a little bit and then get back out there. Yeah. Mm, that's really good. What about having the conversation with family when they're like, come and have a fucking drink, you fucking party pooper? Yeah. Look, it, it depends on the person. Most of them, I would just give them the heads up beforehand. Like, mm. I'm not going to be drinking. I can't wait to see you. I'm looking forward to spending time with you. Please know that I will never judge you for drinking. But if this is working for me. It's working for my mental health. And that's a priority for me at the moment. And so just I'm just asking you, please don't pressure me. I you know? love that. Yeah, that's really proactive. That's really like, I don't know. I love that. It's really empowered. Mm. And it's sort of like going in there with it, but ending it with a positive. Uh, mm. I'm not drinking, but we're going to have a great time. I'm so looking mm. forward to seeing you. And mm. yeah, this has just been great for my mental health. So yeah, I'm going to keep going on that. But anyway, yeah, you go for it. Yeah. I love that. I just find that if you say to someone that something is working for your mental health, it shuts down any kind of like yes. coercion or come on just have one because if you say to someone it really fucks up my mental health it makes me really anxious and depressed then there's not gonna be many people that are going to argue with that oh fuck it absolutely look this is something I don't often talk about but if you're still drinking and you're listening to this podcast or if you're going into a family situation where people are drinking I want you to think about the kids yeah. no one thinks about the fucking kids when everyone's getting mm. shit-faced and Christmas is about the kids right yeah. And yeah. I'm really, I'm sorry to bring this up, but it's just, I've reflected on a few Christmases gone by and having got shit faced ourselves and thinking about what the fuck, what about the poor kids? Some of the stuff that ends up that even if things go pear shaped and the kids have to see that, or the kids aren't feeling as connected to, that's something to consider as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's a massive one. And and you're right, like Christmas is for the kids and about the kids. And if the parents are just getting shit faced, it's only ever going to end in one kind of way, which is either they're passed out and asleep and miss it. Or like what's happened with us before is like arguments and, and you know, things like that can happen. Or the parents are just off in their own little world and not even aware of what the kids are doing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's it's a really good reminder to think about the kids in that way. 
Absolutely. What if you were to, for people that are on the fence or people that are feeling unsure that they've been sober for a little while and then thinking, oh, maybe Christmas time, looking at it through a different lens and just going, you know what, fuck this. I'm going to go into this holiday season and come out completely sober, hangover free, unscathed, happy kids, happy family, and look and and just see how that looks for me at the end of it. Set yourself a new challenge. And that's what I was writing a blog about this the other day. And I was saying like, Think about how you want to feel. Like, how mm. do you want to feel over those days? Do you want to feel energized and calm and well slept and present and like you can get up in the morning and go and do anything that you want to do? Or do you want to wake up every morning with the like the dreaded kind of hangover feeling and worried about what you said last night, feeling sick, you're not really well slept, tired, exhausted? Like, how do you actually want to feel? Because mm. the decisions you make will directly impact the feelings that you have each day. And so remembering that as well. Absolutely. Or even uh, how do you not want to feel? Mm. I do not want to feel like a bag of dicks when I wake up on mm. Christmas Day. Yeah. No, thanks. Yeah. 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 Look, even down to last year, I'm lucky enough because Ash's family don't drink. So it's kind of, it's always been pretty easy with them. But even down to making the Christmas trifle with no alcohol in it and just it's still super yummy, still beautiful. And it's just so great. Like, it's just such, I always actually remember the difference between my family Christmases and Ashes. I used to think it was really fucking weird how they didn't drink and listen to Neil Diamond Hot August Night over and over again. And that was fun too. Like, I'm not saying it wasn't fun. We've had absolute awesome Christmases with my family, but Ashes family, they'd be outside kicking soccer, the soccer Mm. ball. Mm. um, And you're just like, wow, this people do it so differently. It depends on what you've grown up with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel at all like you'd be judged with, I mean, your family obviously know what you do now and I'm assuming that there'd be no judgment there. Do you feel like you'd be judged at all? I don't think that I would be judged, but I feel like they will worry that I'm judging them and that might cause a little bit of tension. And so I will be very clear to share that I don't care. Like I honestly don't care. You do you. Now I might talk about sobriety a lot and I support thousands of people to change their alcohol but only the people that want to change if, if alcohol is not showing up as a problem for you then go for your life I just don't care right and there's mm. there's and and but people think because of what you do for a job that therefore you're going to be judging them and that's and I don't want them to feel that way yeah totally I really like this just to go back to that as well just thinking about just doing it differently like challenge yourself to do Christmas differently this year no matter how it looks even if you've been sober for five or six years even just doing something differently. I don't know what it is, but bringing in new games or new games for the kids or something Mm. else, just going in there with a fresh outlook on it. But definitely if this is your first sober Christmas coming up, we'd both love to hear from you. I'm sure I'm just going to throw you in the deep in here, Sarah, but I'm sure you feel the same that we'd just love to hear from people who got through it and how that was for them. Yeah, I think it's such a great thing to get through and it's such a huge achievement and accomplishment. But I'm sure we can both attest to this, that you're going to feel so much better for it if you can get through sober. And I think it just gets better and better. I don't know if you've found that. Like the first one was a little bit clunky because the neural pathways are very strong. I mean, you should be mm. drinking now. How could you be having that lunch and not having a drink? But by the time the second, the third, the fourth, it's just for me anyway, has just got better and better and better. And the joy that I now have at Christmas and having that time with my kids, and I just feel so fucking grateful that yeah. I have made the decision that I made and I get to give my kids this experience now instead of what it might have been like 
Yeah. I know the hardest times for me are always like putting up the tree. Right. Putting up the tree, having the Christmas carols, usually be drinking Baileys or something like that to do that. And that took a while to change that. But, you know, you still, you put up the tree, you still play the carols, you still do all the things. You just don't need to get shit faced when you're doing it. Exactly. Exactly. And every now and then, I, I mean, I don't drink alcohol free drinks very much, but every now and then, if I'm in a situation where there's lots of people drinking, Sometimes I will have an alcohol-free drink and that will mm. like that will scratch the itch a little bit for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm um, the same, except for the the G and Ts. I don't mind those because they're not something I typically drank before. Mm, yeah. Um, but I did just get onto the what is it? Is it Jacob's Creek? The sparkling? No, the Brown Brothers. The Brown oh, yeah, Brothers. That's a good one. Yeah. Seco. So mm. nice. I'm like, yeah. shit. So I've got yeah. a few of those up my sleeve for Christmas just for fun, just for something yeah, different. For sure. Yeah, absolutely love it. Sarah, amazing. So talk to me about, just going back now, back to your story and we'll wrap things up. But if and when you do feel lonely these days, what do you do? How do you remedy that for yourself? Great question. It's not often I do get lonely times of course I do because I'm still on the other side of the world from some of my closest people I'm now open to being vulnerable and whereas old Sarah had to have her armor up all the time and she had to pretend everything was fine all the time and now I can actually let that down and I can send a message to someone and go I'm really struggling I'm feeling really lonely can we have a chat and Mm. I can say that to my husband now which I never used to be able to say and so I actually can ask for what I need as opposed to having to always just pretend that I was fine even when I wasn't yeah that's beautiful love that oh Sarah I could talk to you all day honestly so you said you're writing a blog when's that coming out about Christmas and dealing with Christmas stuff yeah so that'll be on my website soon that's sarahrustbatch.com is my website there'll be a few blogs on there and then my book comes out in Australia on the 30th of January I've seen that I've seen you Mm. posting about that on Instagram so congratulations that's so amazing now is it going to be out on audible I'm waiting to find out so hopefully it will be on audible but it's definitely gonna it's available for pre-order now and anyone who does pre-order it now I've created five pre-videos to help people through the festive season to be able to get hold of so you just go onto my website sarahrustbatch.com and you pre-order the book, enter your order number, and you'll get emailed the five videos from me, which follow quite a few of the themes in the book, because the book is about, it's not about how to get sober, it's about how to stay sober. So it's Um, about how to create a life where you don't actually need to drink anymore. Oh, that's so awesome. That sounds absolutely fantastic. I'll have to get you back on in the new year, and we can talk more about the book. Yeah, I'd love to and whatever else you've got going on. Uh, And now, and so I'll put in the show notes, all the places that people can contact you and your services as well. Tell us a little bit about what you do. So I work mostly with women. I found that, I don't know, you probably find the same, but but, but middle-aged women is the demographic that I'm working with the most because that's where dysfunctional drinking seems to be happening so, so much. It was certainly the case for me. So I run programs, courses that create community at the same time as offering support. So women come into my programs and they feel a sense of connection with others and that they've got other people on the journey with them so they don't feel so alone. 
and mm. I do uh, challenges. So it's a 30 day challenge. The next one will be in January. And then after that, for those that want to do it, I do some of the deeper coaching work. Well, who the hell am I without alcohol? Who am I now that I'm not getting pissed all the time? What brings mm. me joy? What do I do for fun? How am I going to manage my stress? How am I going to deal with my triggers? And that's a deeper coaching program called Rediscovering Me. Oh, that sounds absolutely awesome, Sarah. Fantastic. So yeah, again, if anyone wants to reach out to you, what would you say is the best way? Would it be Instagram at the moment or email? Yeah, Instagram or send me an email, sarah at sarahrusbatch.com. Absolutely awesome. Well, best of luck with the book. Congratulations. Thank you. I've got to get through Christmas in the UK first, Annie. I shall be digging deep. I shall assure you of that. But um, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be a different one. So Better take a copy of your book. I know, right? <laughs> let us let us know how you go. And for people that are worried about this Christmas period, reach out to myself or Sarah or let us know how you go afterwards. We'd love to hear from you and love to hear how you went. And or if you've got any concerns or worries, I'm sure we can help you out between us. Yeah, just fantastic. Absolutely love your work. Love talking to you. And I think we'll add your book next year to the How I Could Alcohol Grads book club. That'd be awesome. awesome. Maybe Amazing. you can come and talk to the group. I'd love to. Absolutely love to. Amazing, Sarah. Thank you so much and have a great Christmas and thank you for your time today. You too, Danny. Thank you so much. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.